for September 1st, 2014. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 322. Hello, Kitty. The Horrible Sanrio Dystopia. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The cat's away and the mice will play. Matt Rather has, uh, has, is occupied this week with some sort of grand adventure. Whenever that red phone rings and he vanishes for days at a time, whenever that police box shows up in his living room and he vanishes into the ether, into the distant universe, we don't ask questions. We just pick up the torch and run with it. So I'm very excited to be hosting today's podcast. It's another two-hander with my dear friend and colleague and fellow overthinker, Mark Lee. Mark, how are you doing? Doing. I'm doing great. I still object to this idea of being called a two-hander because there are clearly more than two hands involved in this, but um, this is not that podcast. Let's keep soldiering on with however many hands it is that we have, um, with the cats or whatever they are being away. That's a teaser for something we're going to talk about. A <laughs> that bit. is a teaser. That is a <laughs> teaser. So if you guys wanted to be teased, uh, the cats being away and the mice playing, but are they mice and are they cats? And what can is- you say... If, 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 can you say hello to them if they are here and not away? <laughs> we have a very, very intense and serious subject <laughs> that we need to get to. You've probably heard about it out on the internet, and you probably knew as soon as you heard it, there was only one website, one podcast that was really going to give this subject the treatment that it deserves. And we are aiming to do that in full force today. But first, we have to start with our question of the week. Now, of course, for the question of the week, we sometimes like to be a little topical. We like to be a little bit current. We like to look at the world of pop culture and entertainment and just pluck away at the guitar strings that are currently strung on the current guitar neck. That metaphor doesn't quite work, but we're going to keep moving. And so you often, over the course of the summer, we have the joy to podcast passionately about summer movies, which are very exciting. Well, this past weekend, as actually at this point was last weekend, uh, as we record this, a movie came out that one would have thought we would have wanted to see, but in fact we did not see at all, not even a little bit. And that movie uh, had terrible reviews and did phenomenally poorly, uh, so poorly in its opening weekend, making less than $6.5 million, uh, maybe a little bit more, depending on whether you're talking foreign or domestic. Uh, we are, of course, talking about Frank Miller's Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, also known as Sim City 2, which, I mean, if people think The Expendables 3 bombed, uh, this really, 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 really bombed. Right. I mean, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like publicity outfit spends that much money in like an afternoon right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there were this is an all-star I mean, I cast that because it's like the magnitude of the of the cast the the fame of the cast involved in this um is so great compared to the um diminutive box office return that it was able to generate yeah right? I, I i have not seen this big a disparity between the quality of the cast and like the total and utter lack of desire to see this movie i haven't seen anything like that probably since movie 43 uh, although movie 43 still is probably to a greater degree than this but at any rate and you know i don't know sin city is a good story and all that but there was just something about bringing jessica alba back what however many kids later and however many years later and pretending that no time had passed and putting her in the same outfit with the same special effects that 
just made me think this is maybe something that I can skip. I can maybe skip this one. Um, I have to move. My nephew was born last weekend, which is awesome. Uh, so all sorts of good stuff was happening, including not seeing Frank Miller's Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. So we looked at the list. We looked at the list of box office mojo of movies that opened between 1982 and the present that it opened in more than 2,500 theaters, right? So Sin City 2 opened in 2,894 theaters. There are only 68 movies in the past 32 years. So that's about two movies a year that have done worse on as many screens or close to as many screens as Sin City 2. To give you an idea, the movie on the list that did a little bit better than Sin City 2 is the Jerry O'Connell vehicle, Tomcats, which I'm sure you all remember (laughs) with great fondness for various subway advertisements like I saw when I was riding the subway back uh, when that movie came out in 2001. Uh, So, was was that 2001? Yeah, it was 2001. As a side note, this uh, podcast is getting off to quite the feline start um, not, not really intentionally but um oh we just have nine lives on this one uh we're gonna spend all of them though so there are 68 other movies that did a worse opening weekend on similar amount of screens as sin city 2 and i would like to because some of these are pretty awesome and some of them are really really terrible uh just a little preview one movie that i talk about a lot on the podcast that is on this list is uh, fear.com the thriller from 2002 which is notable because it was about a haunted website called fear.com Com, but the <laughs> but the mark confused with the the, um, the venerable charitable organization fear.org yeah exactly but the web marketing the marketing team for fear.com couldn't get the website domain <laughs> fear.com oh. so they got a website domain f-e-a-r-d-o-t-c-o-m.com they got fear.com.com and that was the website you could go to to get the promotions for the movie they were still figuring out how to do movie movie website promotions at the time um, but there's all sorts of names on this list that you might recommend from properties that were more successful than the movie that, that came out, such as uh, The Wild Thornberries, the movie, uh, or uh, Josie and the Pussycats, the movie. Uh, you know, there's a, the Latter-day Punisher Warzone movie, which I'm surprised it came out in as many theaters. I think of that primarily as a DVD or a streaming movie. Same with uh, Dread. Um, oh, Jonah Hex, the, like the even poorer man's uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it, there's all, so many wonderful gems on this list, and I wanted us each to just pick a favorite and just share our favorite of this list of the 68 movies that did worse than Sin City uh, 2 uh, and, just, and just share it with y'all today. So, uh, of course, because we go in with the host last as our exception to alphabetical order, drink because it's Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing um, perfectly. That's how I'm doing. Um, Okay, so I actually have not seen many or even any of the movies, of these 68 movies that opened worse than Frank Miller's Sin City Colon A Dame to Kill For. Um, But I do have a soft spot in my heart for one of these entries, which is The Country Bears. Pete, you remember The Country Bears? Oh, of course I do, because Balinky had the Uh (laughs) t-shirt. Of course Balinky had the t-shirt. Okay, for those who don't remember The Country Bears, they are, um, I believe they started out as an animatronic attraction at one of the disney theme parks there are literally uh, anthropomorphic bears that are um that are animated through animatronics and they play country music and they play fun instruments like the square guitar the cigar box guitar um uh, and uh, and the what do you call the washboard and the jug and yeah. the um the what do you, what's that um the the 
the bass with one string that's yeah. that's attached to a tub, a bass yep, tub yep. bass, something mm-hmm. like that. Okay, those are all sort of countryfied uh, musical instruments. Um, I have this like very. I, I remember going to Disney World as a kid, seeing them, really enjoying them, and was delighted when I was reminded of their existence by the Taylor Swift music video for "We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together," which featured uh, performers in bear costumes with uh, cigar box shaped electric guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, the other great thing about the Country Bears is that um, Showbiz Pizza uh, ripped them off to create the Rock of Fire Explosion Band, which is the other whole hot mess of uh, animatronics and uh, uh, and American vernacular music. Um, but um, uh, so, I, 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 this is my favorite movie from the list, uh, not just because I have a fond uh, childhood uh, remembrance of the Country Bears, but also just been thinking a lot about country music recently um, in the context of our conversation about Taylor Swift last week and some research that I've been doing for an upcoming overthinking it piece about lyrics in country music. And uh, as I've been pouring through hundreds, literally hundreds of, uh, of lyrics to hit country music songs, I'm reminded of how much country music um, speaks to this idea of, a, of an America that sees itself apart. Mm. from something else um and so uh it's something else i mean like you know whatever you want to call it coastal elites mainstream america um you know it's urban america whether it is on the coast or on the interior any of these other things um it, it's just sort of an interesting reminder of the of the vastness of the uh, american spirit and um it's a shame that this movie that captured it with bears and i guess not animatronics but cgi did not do so well at the box office. So I'm just trying to give the country pair some love, but I didn't <laughs> now, get. Now, can I ask you a question as a music guy? Because I know we were both, we both have been musicians and we've both played music together and we've both sure. studied music theory, but you're quite a bit more accomplished at it than I am. Um, I only got as far as music theory AP in, in high school. I didn't continue to study it when I was in college. Now, looking through the Wikipedia articles, are the Country Bears really a country band? Or would they qualify more as a jug band or a skiffle band uh, because of the instruments, the improvised instruments that they're using? I don't know much about the Country Bears' music, but are they playing more of a country music or are they playing more of like a blues jazz music? Oh, man, Pete, you really put me on the spot here <laughs> to like recall. Um, I, I, I spoke as if I have this, like, you know, uh, all the tunes of the Country Bears sort of percolating, percolating in the Spotify of my mind. Um, sadly, I do not. I am not that familiar with how the country bears actually sound. I'm just more sort of like into how they look, right? The ideas they represent. Well, here's as a, opposed to any like countryness or not countryness of of of, of their music and the well, sounds that their cigar box uh, guitar. Well, actually this do. actually ties into what we're going to talk about later because the question is: Are the the country bears? Are they to what extent are the country bears bears? And to what extent <laughs> are the country bears down in their luck like rural American musicians? Right? Because most bears are not down in their luck rural American musicians. The two groups tend to be mutually exclusive. So. So, you know, when I think about jug bands, right, the thing that comes to mind for me is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which is the Muppet version of the Country Bears, sort of, right, which is a movie that came out in 1977. Uh, it got rebroadcast in the 80s, in the early 80s. I saw it in the, in the 80s when I was a child, and it's about a bunch of otters that play in a jug band, right? Whoa. And so they have, a, they have a washboard, they have a, a jug that they blow on, they have a little box guitar, and uh, they meet Kermit the Frog, and, and all this other stuff goes down, right? Uh, now, one of the things about Emmett Otter's jug band is, is you got the sense that they were kind of like they were from a very specific sort of a Mississippi Delta kind of rural background, mm-hmm. right? And I don't, and because of the sort of 
francophonic influences, or not francophonic, but just the French influences, the Creole influences, the different culture of life, you know, post Napoleonic Louisiana and whatnot. You know, the <laughs> Napoleonic Code, as Stanley Kowalski would say, right? The cultural differences between Louisiana and the rest of the country. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as country, and I wouldn't necessarily group them in with the same sort of exceptionalism that's often looped in with country musicians, like the Toby Keith being the absolute Toby Keith is everything about country music that is not Emma Otter's jug band, right? Like, <laughs> and so, so I, I guess my question is, and of course you don't remember, and I don't remember. The other question is, are the country bears black? Right? Are they African American bears, or are they are they African American down in their luck rural musicians, or are they like? Caucasian, down in the luck, rural American musicians, which is pretty important when you're talking about what musical tradition they come from if they're folk musicians, right? Like, uh, normally I would say, well, they're either, you know, it doesn't matter, music is music and people are people, but if you're talking about people who picked up a, or bears, that picked up a folk music from, like, the anthropomorphic bear background that they come from, then if the implication is that they are you know, black bears from the Mississippi Delta, as it were, <laughs> they would play different music than if they were uh, white bears, polar bears from Halifax. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, the, the other significance being uh, Disney's somewhat problematic relationship with the rural South. Yes. In its, um, uh, um, not just, it's all wrapped up in the theme park. Uh, stuff that they they put in there, but also their movies. I'm, I'm of course, speaking about the Song of the South. I was thinking about Dumbo, right. of course. But yeah, Song of the of, South. Of what, sorry? Dumbo. Dumbo and like the oh, crows, yeah, the Dumbo, crows yeah. that's, that do the, the jive singing or whatnot. Yeah. Um, I'd be unseen about everything if I see an elephant fly, which is not particularly offensive. But yeah, Song of the South. It's definitely because it was such a huge. People forget what a huge part of the culture all that stuff was, right? People people oh, pretend. Yeah. yeah. My, my 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 father, right, who was born in Korea. Uh, in in the 1940s, yeah. okay, like you know, brought us up on zippity doo dah. Yeah, yeah, that's what kind of movie that was, right? Mm-hmm. Zippity doo dah, zippity day, my oh my, got a wonderful day, plenty of sunshine heading my way, wonderful feeling, wonderful day with a bluebird on my shoulder. Like it's like seared into my uh, into my skull in, in, in the 80s. That's that's some powerful stuff there. Yeah, totally. And I mean, even when you go back farther, even a couple of generations, uh, even the beginning of the 20th century, but of course in the 19th century, you know, minstrelsy and related theaters were huge parts of the culture, just enormous, right? You know, Har- um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's like meeting Lincoln at the White House for writing Uncle John Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? It's but even more. Than that you know like you know they have the famous clip of what uh i always forget which rooney it is it's mickey rooney and judy garland and did, uh, did some blackface dancing and singing right so it's like a huge part of the culture has a huge amount of influence i'm not saying it's okay totally not okay but um it, there are you know any any company that says that they've never had anything to do with it is either a new company or is lying and of mm-hmm. course we have people go back and they whitewash so i mean it would probably be hard i don't even know how much of emmett's emmett otter's jug band christmas which is really very sweet as i recall it is if i were to watch it again would be like uncomfortably racist <laughs> yeah like, I, really. I, I, honestly i had never heard of emmett otter's jug band until yeah. you brought it up and i am like desperate to go on youtube binge and, and and learn more about this but uh bef- uh, before we leave this topic entirely um pete you said that uh, what any company that um who has not done minstrel mystery is either not old or um or or, or lying. lying yeah right yeah, yeah. just want to clarify overthinking it has never done a minstrel <laughs> We're, we're, we we've only been around since 2008, that. though. <laughs> so, right? I mean, we, did the, we did the opposite of that, right? And when I did the uh, Mr. Miyagi video, yeah, yeah, yeah. I redubbed uh, Mr. Miyagi's broken Asian uh, Asian accent with like a straight up um, a, a, 
uh, Americanized, unaccented English, and much in the manner which I'm speaking now. Right, right, right. right. Uh, yeah, no, no. I think, I think. Um, I mean, we're certainly influenced by it, but we're self-conscious about it, and we're aware of it, which makes it okay. Uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, obviously, these are things that we care about a lot, and we want to make sure that we're on the right side of all the people that we care about and all the people that we might potentially know or, or you know, influence. Uh, but I, I'm not a believer in the idea that being ignorant of these things, uh, at, nor being like uniformly condemning at, with no other subtlety in your thinking, right? Like no other, dis- no. The idea that you shouldn't learn about things that are are wrong. Right, and it's like no, you should learn about them because you got to understand what was going on and why people were doing this stuff. Because otherwise, you come to this conclusion that everybody that is really old was just bad, right? And like, uh, and it's like, oh, they were evil then, and then like, you know, somebody found the Horcrux, and now it's all fixed. Right? Like, no, it's not. <laughs> we didn't fix yes. it. <laughs> President Lyndon Johnson found the Horcrux. <laughs> That's why he was on the toilet for so long. It was right. in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so getting back to movies that did worse in their opening. Weekends than Sin City. I've seen a number of these uh, going through it. I mean, Machete Kills is on this list, which is kind of unfortunate, right? Uh, Wizard of Oz 2, which I've seen, is on this list, right? MacGruber is on this list, which I actually feel like I've seen a lot of GIFs of lately, or GIFs, and I really want to see it. Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, Dread, the reboot, which really word only got around about it afterwards. I mean, you might even say a lot of these movies, it would be interesting to look at how many of these movies are targeting an audience of people that primarily pirates movies, right? Like maybe that, like Punisher, Warzone, Dread, Machete Kills. It's interesting that just from the last few years, there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of like lower lower end like brutal R rated action movies that um, somebody could pick up in on the pirate bay and not really have qualms about it. Uh, it's just interesting to think about. And then of course maybe they make their money elsewhere and they do other things, but. Uh, the one that I'm going to point out to – oh, The Last Stand, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie about the sheriff, which I, we both saw in the theater, right? Oh. That's on the no, list. No, I, I missed that. I'm, I'm part of the problem. You didn't see that movie? movie? Oh. If they didn't get you to see that movie, they totally failed. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As is, uh, what, New York Minute with the Olsen twins and Eugene Levy. But the ve- my very, very favorite movie on this list, and one that I hope that I've referenced before on the podcast, because it is just that darn good, is the, I think it's 2000, and no, it's 1999 Lou Diamond Phillips vehicle, Bats. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, but it includes one of my great. I saw it in a hotel. Uh, I believe it was in a it was in a hotel. Uh, it was on cable TV late at night. We were watching it. It has Lou Diamond Phillips. It has Demon Meyer, Dina Meyer from Starship Troopers, and it has Bob Gunton, who is uh, from Twenty Four, uh, which you know he played Ethan Ethan Kanan. Uh, on uh, on the later seasons of 24, one of the senior advisors to uh, the lady president and whatnot. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so this movie includes a wonderful speech where the Lou Diamond Phillips is, is a small-town sheriff who has realized that there is a giant flock of carnivorous bats that are flying around from town to town and, and eating people. And so he's trying to figure out what to do about this because the bats are approaching larger populated areas. This was a movie to show off the ability to, to animate on a computer a large number of bats at the same time, which was something that you could execute in 1999, but not quite as well as this movie demands it. Right? So, uh, <laughs> and so the, uh, ironically, at this point in the movie, I believe that the heroes are taking refuge. They've, they've rescued one of the scientists 
from the evil bat research compound that created the bats. And they've brought him along in their posse. And I believe they've taken refuge in a cave to hide from the bats, which is just the kind of irony you expect from Sophocles, <laughs> not from Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, <laughs> directed, by the way, by Louis, Louis Morneau, who has also directed such movies as Joyride 2 and Werewolf the Beast Among Us. Uh, so, you know, keep that in mind. Carnosaur 2, Soldier Boys, I've heard of that one. Um, anyway, there's a big speech where the, the evil scientist guy is like, bats, they're the ultimate predator. They're fast, they operate in darkness and silence, and they, they're intelligent and they can't be stopped. And we made them better, faster, stronger, more bloodthirsty, nearly unkillable. <laughs> like, oh, he gives this big speech about all the stuff they did for the bats. And then uh, I, I, I think it's Dina Meyer and not Lou Diamond Phillips who says, Why did you do that? <laughs> I think you have references. That's a a great rejoinder to that. And the scientist said, because we're scientists, and that's what we do. (laughs) And so if you ever hear – this is actually a common common, – Exasperated statement from either me or from my dear friend, uh, my dear friend Raf, will often say, "Why did you do that?" In conversation, in reference to the movie uh, Bats, which, by the way, if you're counting, uh, Bats is the number 26 on the list of lowest-grossing movies that opened in more than 2,500 theaters. Uh, it is. It grossed 4.7 million dollars in 1999, just beating out Monsters Inc. 3D. The re-release from 2012. Um, so there you go. So we're done now talking about these terrible failures of movies, and and we can hope that uh, Mr. Gordon Levitt, uh, Ms. Alba, Mr. Rourke, Ms. Green, and all the other oh, and all the other practitioners of uh, urban urban nefariousness and misbehavior um, find out a better project that they then work on in the future. That's not this one. Um, Before we take off from this, like, is there anything at all to be said about uh, Sin City itself? Like, did you see the original one? Have you read any of the graphic novels? I read all the graphic novels. Uh, I read all of them. Blinky owned them. Uh, We went through them together. Blinky and I, we lived together in New York in the early 2000s, and he had the full set of Sandman, and he had the full set of Sin City. Um, He was the kind of guy who would introduce his friends to uh, exotic culture that they were unfamiliar with. Blinky is the reason that I'd seen any Stephen Chow movies, right? Like, I don't watch any Family Guy anymore because when the first season or whatever a Family Guy came out and it was canceled, Blinky got a bootleg DVD and we just watched the heck out of it until we were totally exhausted. So then when it came back a a year or two later, we weren't interested in it anymore. So, like, Blinky was definitely a purveyor of this sort of culture, overthinking it's Blinky. Uh, So I read all the Sin City books. I saw the first movie. Love the first movie. It was extremely faithful. Like, it was storyboarded from the comics. Um, this is the same guy who did the comic to 300, right? And 300 is, is not as faithful because the 300 comic book is like 30 pages long. Um, but uh, it's more of a coffee table illustration book, whereas Sin City has a whole series of stories. Um, and, yeah, no, I, I really liked it. I really liked the first Sin City. But this Sin City, I just had no interest in seeing it at all. It's, it's a long time ago. Um, I feel like the culture has moved on. It just... Part of Sin City was that it was shocking, right? Part of Sin City was that it was iconic and stripped down. I think that might be the most interesting part of it. Because Sin City, the graphic novels are almost entirely in black and white, mm-hmm. except for the yellow bastard, right, who is a character who is yellow. And, and this he's is a bastard. Of, and he's, yeah, and he's one of the villains. <laughs> I think he's played by uh, 
Is he he's not played by Elijah Wood? Elijah Wood plays one of the villains in the first Sin City movie, but I'm not. I don't remember which villain's name is which and all that stuff. But yeah, there's like blood that they show that's red, and then there's the yellow bastard who's yellow, and things he leaves behind and stuff are yellow. But other than that, everything's in black and white. It's all very kind of angularly drawn. It's a lot of really heavy lines and shadows, um, like you know cracks in people's skin, you know, his wrinkles. Everybody, everybody looks like the thing from Fantastic Four, right? Everybody's got all sorts of contours and they're very chiseled bodies. All the dudes, anyway. All the women are, of course, in- incredibly and offensively objectified. I'm sure that's the one that has the like the samurai hooker who jumps from rooftops and slices people up, which is just mm. not really a character that I think. Oh, sounds like a strong female character to me. She oh, that's true. She definitely does her squats. She can definitely jump high because that's really what we need. To, we need in our culture, as we've learned from Shane Musk. It's like you know, women who jump high, <laughs> women who swing swords fast. Now, who wants three-dimensional character development? That's Shane Mulaski's famous uh, article, one of our most popular articles of all time, Strong Female Characters Are Bad for Women, where she talks about that relationship, right, between uh, physical strength and then the sort of strength of, in, of the experience that the character has, the depth of the character that is really what you want when you're talking about making a character in a movie or a book that's like not kind of a helpless facade of a person. Yeah. So, so knowing very little about Sin City, like yeah. maybe I've seen a couple trailers here and there, and I'm reading uh, the the synopsis here on IMDb. A film that explores a dark and miserable town based in city and tells the story of three different people all caught up in violent corruption. Yes. Uh, it, it like it seems like so over the top, dark and gritty and noir. Like I'm wondering, like is this going for self parody or is like um, you know uh, is someone trying to do this? Um, playing this completely straight and like, like as you said, Pete, the culture has moved on and can't sort of accept the sort of uh, straight, dark, gritty noir thing. Well, the first one had Bruce Willis in it, right? Who can pull this sort of thing off? The the first one, the fr- it is it is funny. Sin City is funny. Sin City is parodic. It's genre self conscious. Um, it's not goofy. It's very serious and it's very violent, and and it does have a lot of gravitas. But it is a a self-aware genre piece about noir and detective stuff and mm. and that kind of thing. Now, the thing about this movie though is. It's it's they didn't call it Sin City two, right? They call it Sin City: A Dame to Kill For. Um, it tells it looks like it has the same a lot of the same characters that were in Sin City one in it. And from what I've read, it takes place roughly contemporaneously at points with the events of Sin City. One, so it's sort of like that part of Back to the Future Two, where Marty McFly goes back in time to like the events of Back to the Future One, right? Like, and it's like, oh, that's a cool little gimmick. Except this doesn't have the gimmick. It's just like these are parallel events that are happening at roughly the same time to the first one. So the reason why that description is so over the top is that there should be some other explanation for why they made this movie, right? It's like you know they made RoboCop, which is about a robot cop that's on the mean streets of Detroit where an evil corporation is trying to take over. And then it's like, if you just made RoboCop 2 and you just said, it's about a robot cop on the mean streets of Detroit where an evil corporation is trying to take over, you'd be like, why didn't I just watch the first RoboCop? And then they make like seven more, right? And it's like, fine. But no, and then they make the reboot and all that stuff. So it's like, what makes this Sin City 2 is the thing that's missing, I think. And, and the reason that the, sure. it's a situation of bad writing reflecting bad thinking, where it's, you know, and that as an editor, I run into that a lot as somebody who works in marketing and editing and communication. It's like, if you come up across a piece of writing and it seems to be awkward or difficult to read or difficult to understand or just not get a point across or just be really bad, or if it's also like really offensive or like seems thoughtlessly composed, often it reflects a lack of thinking. 
thinking or of complete thinking or effective thinking about the thing that it's talking about. Uh, and so it's like, well, the reason that the description of Sin City 2 sounds stupid is because they didn't figure out why they were making it. Now, of course, I haven't seen it, so I don't know, right? And you haven't known. Right, you don't either. Right. But it's like um, if they had described Sin City 2 in a way that felt more compelling – Perhaps it would have spoken to something that they actually did in Sin City 2 that would have made it more compelling sure. than yeah. this rehash. I mean, I, your, your description of, you know, a RoboCop movie and, like, why to justify having another one of it, um, <laughs> it brought to mind for, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, um, a, a perfect justification for another RoboCop movie, which is uh, RoboCop 6 Mission to Moscow. Yeah. <laughs> right? why, did, why didn't they make that? Why doesn't that exist? And um, it, it really ought to. So Honestly, if they just called it Sin City Shanghai and placed it in China... It probably would have done great. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, actually. yeah just police or, academy or, that garbage. Just or, put or, it somewhere or, yeah. else. You yeah, know, or Hong Kong, or you know, there's yeah. like there's all sorts of dark and noir and gritty and yeah. exoticness going on in 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 China and the Far East, right? Yeah, Sin City, bl- Boardwalk Blues, right? And it's like it takes place at a beach. <laughs> like like it's different because it's in a different place. It's got a beach. <laughs> like okay, I'll see that. But like Sin City, there was a dame to kill for in the first one. You don't need. That's not clarifying for me which Sin City this is. <laughs> like that'd be like calling it you know Police Academy, and instead of calling it Police Academy Two, calling it like Police Academy that crazy Mahoney. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I'm gonna close this. How about this with the description? Of the, this is pretty weak sauce of. Uh, a Sin City Dame to Kill for an IMDb. So you heard what I said earlier for the first Sin City movie, and here it is for the second one. Some of Sin City's most hard-boiled citizens cross paths with a few of its more reviled inhabitants. <laughs> Some of the characters from the first movie meet additional people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. So, uh, I mean, honestly... Uh, all I can think about when thinking about Sin City and thinking about all this stuff, it really, it, it, it really, uh, it, it makes me think about abominations. It makes me think about <laughs> ungodly abominations and things that the world was never meant to see or know. And we are, of course, talking about the mega scandal of the week. Uh, in, in case you were wondering, this isn't about the Ukraine. This isn't about Missouri or any other place where they're having any sort of, you know, real world strife where actual people are actually suffering. We are talking about the mental anguish uh, of stakeless fans and non-fans as uh, the horrible <laughs> cataclysm <laughs> that took place this week. So, so, so we, we, should, we should come up with the – Where's you have the original, right? You want to read the original piece from uh, – is it Sanrio or Samio or what are they called? The Jug Band? Uh, Sanrio. I actually have it right here. They said this in the LA Times. Do you want to read it, Mark, or should I? Sure, uh, I got it right here. Okay, great. Okay, so we're breaking news. Breaking folks. news. This is, uh, you know, a statement from major corporation Sanrio, and I quote: "Hello Kitty is not a cat. What? She's a cartoon character. She is a little girl. She's a friend, but she is not a cat. She's never depicted on all fours. She walks and sits like a two-legged creature. She does. She does have a pet cat of her own, however." And it's called Charmy Kitty. Wow. Now, what you guys might see here. Now, we, we in Overthinking It have tackled this subject before. Uh, we've, we've t- this is also often known to philosophers as the goofy Pluto problem. Uh, 
<laughs> and and we have we have uh, it's been covered by of course Shane Malowski, uh one of one of our dear friends who wrote an article about this in 2009 called From Scooby to Scrappy an analysis of cartoon doghood right where the question is and she she saw it she she did not frame it as aggressively as the Sanrio executives here or the Sanrio media contacts have framed it uh, she saw either a continuum or a matrix of dogs. And she talked about relative dogishness and relative humanishness. Mark, do you want to go into any more clarity on that? Uh, yeah, just uh, so the, if you would imagine a two by two matrix, yes. or not a two by two matrix, but a, a, um, a matrix with two axes, right? Um, and on one axis is um, how the dog talks, right? In terms of how human like the dog talks um, versus how human like or how dog like the dog right so if you will imagine um uh, scooby scooby-doo from uh the show scooby-doo um talks a, a little bit like i'm a little bit like a human but a lot like a dog um and acts um mostly like a dog but has some slight human uh action elements to it right so it's sort of like in um in the middle of that um of that graph that you're drawing in your mind and i know you're drawing it in your mind because you're following along very well with us. So that's a very helpful way of thinking about um, anthropomorphizing uh, dogs in pop culture. And um, I think we, we would do well to apply that to cats in pop culture. And I think Sanrio Corporation would do well as well, rather than um, give what seems like at first this very sort of black and white um, binary um, categorization of Hello Kitty as cat or not cat. Um, at least that's how it seemed like at first. But we should actually um, uh, add to this conversation um, Sanrio's clumsy attempt at, <laughs> at damage control. Frantic backpedaling is probably... <laughs> okay, so here's the follow-up statement. It's going too far to say that Hello Kitty is not a cat. Hello Kitty is a personification of a cat. So that's the clarification, right? Clear as mud, right? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Sanrio would have done well to have considered this in, in, in Matrix format, but instead, what are they showing here? Um, Hell Kitty uh, is not not a cat. Hell Kitty is the personification of a cat, um, but she's not exactly a cat either. It's, it, 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 uh, it, it is not satisfying, right? It does not yeah. give us intellectual closure of sorts. So I think that's what we're here to do. Right. So there's, well, I, well, actually, no. I mean, uh, we often say in overthinking, right? There's no answer to the problem. There's just further engagement with the problem. I mean, I think that there's – well, this is interesting because this is a creative act that we're talking about, uh, right? So it's interesting because who you are with regards to Hello Kitty matters depending – it affects – your determination and your knowledge about whether Hello Kitty is a cat or not, right? So, like, one of the things that, that Sanrio also said in their original description, or in their secondary conscription, is that Hello Kitty was done in the motif of a cat, which is an issue. So, so there are a, a bunch of different classification systems here that are not compatible with each other. And none of them are compatible with this, um, with the, the matrix either. They're all different ways of classifying hmm. catness or humanness, or even if it is an is or not an is, a ness, uh, right? Like, um, so it, the, I think the first thing to get out of the way is when we're talking about this matrix, right? This dog matrix where, you know, Goofy is a, it talks and acts like a human and, uh, 
does both of those things and is this and, and he's an anthrop- anthropomorphized dog or dog with human qualities is kind of like a hyphenated individual philosophical concept right it's like there is a thing that is a dog that is like a human and that thing exists in degrees that expand that extend from goofy to pluto and it extends along two axes right and the talking like a wolf uh, talking like a dog talking like a human but you know, it is not that this thing is essentially a person or that this thing is essentially a dog, right? Like it mm-hmm. is – there is this – all of these beings that are in this grid that I'm looking at in front of me, which includes the 101 Dalmatians, Lady and the Tramp, Brain from Inspector Gadget, Astro from the Jetsons. By the way, if you can think of a dog in fiction that talks kind of like a human but with a dog accent but still acts entirely like a dog, uh, send it on to us because there's one gap in the Matrix where Shana couldn't fit, a, fit one. There might be a suggestion in the comments, but I'm not going to go all the way through it. But it seems to me to speak to a a class of being that is said, you know, that is said to exist in these fictions. That is an anthropomorphized uh, dog person, right, or, or or person dog, dog person, something along those lines. Sure. Um, and that's not the only way to necessarily look at these things, right? So it's like, does what this says to me is that dogness and personness are dependent upon behavior and speech. That you are become a person by virtue of the things that you do and the things that you say and what you look like and how you act, right? Like, uh, so, you know, I am a person because I talk like a person and I act like a person, right? And, and if I were to talk and act like a dog, I would be more like a dog. Oh, Mark, run, 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 go with the pie ride. Oh, that's a good Pete. That's a good Pete. Oh, Pete, you're so cute. You're so cute. You're so cute. Exactly, exactly. So if I were to do that, then according to the rules of these characterizations, I would be more like a dog. But... It's not unreasonable to look at that situation and say, uh, no, no, Pete, you're not a dog. You are a person who is acting like a dog, <laughs> right? Like, right. And, and that is different than a, a dog, than an anthropomorphized dog, like a dog that is a person-dog uh, combined concept, right? This thing that exists. And it's, it's just such a well-traveled concept. That's part of what we're running into at this point is – Anthropomorphized dogs, anthropomorphized cats, they're such a well-traveled concept in the culture that they're, they've already been articulated a whole space of intermediary points. And if you, if you call into doubt uh, this taxonomy of cartoon dogs and cartoon cats, then uh, you, know, you, are, you are a pariah because you you're sort of speaking against all this, the weight of this culture that's existed. Uh, or not you're a pariah, you're, just, you're being ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, to, to sort of polish off this rant a little bit, I, Sanrio is coming at it from a different direction. Now, the original note was offered in, in the spirit of – it was an interview of somebody who had written a script for the Hello Kitty movie, right? And Sanrio had – Which is happening, right? Which it's is like happening. actively in production. If, I really wish that I could tell you that we were being handsomely paid for this viral marketing for the Hello Kitty movie. <laughs> but we are, in fact, not getting anything, and Sanrio should correct that because we're about to, we're about to defend their philosophical systems. <laughs> 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 but uh, but so she wrote a script in which she refers to Hello Kitty as a cat in the script. And Sanrio says, no, Hello Kitty is not a cat. She's done in the motif of a cat, but she's a cartoon character. She's a little girl, right? Now, this is so – like the defenders of the Hello Kitty canon, like, reviewed the draft of the screenplay that came in. And were like, listen, about this thing here. You can't say she's a cat. I mean I would make one correction to that, which is that it's not the defenders of the canon. It's defenders of the brand, right? It's the people who work for the company whose job it is to – to maintain the integrity of the Hello Kitty brand. And and their job is to make sure that no matter what kind of little wallet you get or little camera case or a little hair thing or a little uh, 
Ford Fiesta ST that you get that has Hello Kitty on it, right? <laughs> like that, that, okay, is Hello Kitty on all fours? Then that's not the Hello Kitty brand. You need to take that off. That's not approved. We're not licensing it, right? Like we're going to only license it if Hello Kitty walks and talks around like a person. And so, um, not well, even, she walks like a person. I don't think she ever, she well, ever talks. Yeah. Okay. I, on the Wikipedia page, um, there's a list of about a dozen people who have done the voice of Hello Kitty. So. Oh, okay. I hope that I hope that they just sat behind a microphone in silence. Uh, but, <laughs> but okay, but it's not even that she's like she, they don't even say she's like this. She says she is this. She is that. She is a little girl. She is a friend. Those are those are like brand speak, right? Those are like you know this you know you know Coke is a companion. Coke is a good time. Right? Like uh, you yeah. know Coke is youth. Coke is you know uh, is things that last and things that matter and friendship and all this other stuff. Um, so in their job, their job is to stand in opposition to people who would reframe Hello Kitty in ways that are not advantageous to the company's strategy, right? Right. So that, that's one way they do it. That's why they said what they said. And they said, well, no, Hello Kitty is not a cat because that's what we say to anybody who tries to put Hello Kitty like drinking from a saucer of milk on a wallet, right? It's like you can't do that because Hello Kitty is a little girl. She's not a cat, right? Right, and if Hello um, Kitty were a cat – so what other options – what other things does that open the door to? Like Hello Kitty, um, lol cats, yeah. for example. Um, um, Hello oh, Kitty – oh, you mean like different products? No, just like other ways of thinking about Hello yeah. Kitty, which are not advantageous to the brand. Well, the thing is she could, you could see Hello Kitty being chased up into a tree or you could see Hello Kitty scratching the furniture, whereas Hello Kitty doesn't do any of those things. Hello Kitty only does cute things, right? Like uh, <laughs> Hello Kitty does friendly things. Hello, Hello Kitty does not antagonize mice as far as I know. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Hello Kitty doesn't kill mice for fun and drag I, them back to home. <laughs> Hello, and bring yeah. it back to you like a, like a prize trophy. Hello Kitty doesn't make the people around her sneeze. Right. Um, she doesn't. But but to get back to the point I was making before, it's that like whether or not I'm a person or a dog, I, I would argue that that's not a product of my behavior. Right. That there's that I might be even a little bit essentialist about it. But it's like the things that characterize whether I'm a person or a dog, uh, you know, those are those are biological things. Right. Like like I, I am in this kingdom. Right. Well, like what makes a cat a cat? Right. Let's 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 look this up. What's the taxonomy of a cat? Uh, I'm looking it up right now. Felis catus, integrated taxonomic into uh, from the uh, this is from from itis, the taxonomic serial number one eight three seven nine eight. It's categorized by Linnaeus in 1758. It is a uh, Felis catus domestica. is a species of the kingdom of Animalia. Uh, it's a chordata. It's a vertebrata. It's a nathosodomata. It's a tetrapoda. It's a mammalia. It's a theria. A eutheria. A carnivore. Okay, so if we go to mammalia, so what I'm trying to figure out now is where in the biological classification systems do Hello Kitty and cats part ways, right? Um, <laughs> they're definitely both mammals, right? And what is theria? It's a subclass of animals that has to do with chordates. Um, you know, this website is too techn- technical for me to be able to tell um, what those things are. Uh, what is theria? Do you know, Mark? Uh, I'm afraid not, no. Okay, so... I haven't taken biology since 10th grade. Okay, oh, so Theria is a subclass of mammals that give birth to live young without using a shelled egg. Uh, <laughs> well, Hell Kitty, as far as you know, it doesn't reproduce. So. Right. Well, that's that's well, I, you know, it will. The, we're going by the two realities that have presented been presented to us, right? Which is that Hello Kitty is a little girl, or Hello Kitty is a cat, right? So it looks like um, humans are Theria, Eutheria, Carnivora. Um, what are primates? I should just get the same page, but I should bring it up for people. Uh, is there anything you want to say about Hello Kitty to kill time? 
time while I look. Well, this I mean, up. like one of the things I'm looking at in this article here um, uh, refers to the uh, duck test, for figuring okay. out you know is Hello Kitty a cat, right? And I believe right. the duck test uh, is categor- is uh, summarized by what if it looks like a duck, if it acts like a duck, if it if it sounds like a duck. Yes. Uh, then it's a duck. Well, right? it's a form. It's a it's a form of inductive reasoning, right? If it, <laughs> you, 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 oh. we're categorizing cats and we're using inductive inductive reasoning on ducks. Um, well, but but the, but what's that statement mean, right? I've often heard it. Then it's probably a duck. Is how I it usually is. Sure, said. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're correct. Then it is probably it is probably a duck. A duck. So, but what yeah. is it that? Could, st- it could be in a highly accurate uh, robotic. Reproduction of a duck, like right? yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a Terminator duck, if you will. I think I think what that said, that what what that sentence really means, what that saying really means, and I believe that my father has used that saying in a court of law when he's been an attorney. <laughs> um, but I think what that means is that yes, there are technical uh, and rare cases wherein th- this thing that we're presenting might potentially be false, but we shouldn't allow the presence of detail and the presence of technicality and the presence of obscure exceptions. Uh, that we shouldn't let that cause, let that cause us to abandon our faculties, our senses, and our base of knowledge in in, do, in inducing and figuring out what things are. Are you trying right? to tell me that there aren't any Terminator ducks out there, Pete? Oh no, ducks there are probably nasty. aren't any Terminator. Okay. <laughs> okay, then there possibly are Terminator ducks out there. Okay, I'm good. okay. So <laughs> we're different orders. So Hello Kitty, the little girl, and Hello Kitty, the the cat, are different orders. Hello Kitty, the little girl, is from the order of primates. Hello Kitty, the the cat, is from the order Carnivora, uh, which was categorized by Bowditch in 1821. It seems like. Um, so yeah, so that's so that's pretty high up in the taxonomical chain. But okay, okay. So but let's 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 uh, let's entertain some alternative ways in which. Yes, maybe you know you look at it. I, I, as a person who is looking at Hello Kitty, I am trying to determine from the qualities of Hello Kitty that I see how to classify Hello Kitty. Yep. Right. So I could say, okay, well, Hello Kitty has whiskers, and Hello Kitty has ears, and Hello Kitty has a little button nose, and you know, and so Hello Kitty is a cat, right? Hello Kitty doesn't doesn't talk much, as far as I can tell. Hello, Hello Kitty is named after um, a, a colloquial uh, phrase for cat. Yes, Hello Kitty's name says that it's a cat. Okay, <laughs> based on the information that I know about Hello Kitty from observing Hello Kitty, I determined by those qualities that I figured out that Hello Kitty is a cat, right? But if you were making Hello Kitty, if you're creating Hello Kitty, right? If you're the person who, like, you're sitting down and you are Prometheus and his brother and you're crafting the many creatures of the earth from clay <laughs> and you're going to determine what qualities which ones are going to get and who is going to get, uh, you know, fire and who is going to get cuteness in the extreme as a defense mechanism and compensation from the gods. Um, you know, what do you put into, like, do you make a cat when you make Hello Kitty? Right, like, like you have the luxury of having other sorts of. A- you have access to more private information about Hello Kitty than the person who is observing Hello Kitty from the outside. Right now, there are certain philosophical schools that would say, "Well, no, actually, the only thing that you can ever assert about Hello Kitty are the things that you know about Hello Kitty from observing Hello Kitty." But if you sat down and you sort of created the idea of Hello Kitty, would it be possible for Hello Kitty to exist inside of an essentialist manner, independently of? observational phenomenon well like for example could you imagine many many different hello kitties and they each have different qualities and they each have different things and then can you sort of decide by by like some sort of determination again it's like well maybe you're deciding by the qualities that they have right um but 
you know, are you what I'm saying is that are you going out? Are you going outward from some sort of first principle, some sort of synthetic determination, some side, some sort of thought, right, that exists on its own, independent of the material world on which Hello Kitty's image is printed? And in that kind of essentialist way of thinking, in much the same way that I am a person because of my biology, right? Like that's a different way of. Of, uh, of me sort of becoming a person and learning how to talk, right? Um, if that's the way that you look at people, which of course is a whole other conversation we could have, right? Like if Hello Kitty were to fall into a vegetative state and lose the capability of being cute, right? Or she could no longer say hello, would she still be a kitty? Would she be protected under loss? <laughs> you know, like that sort of thing. Or is it a quality of kind of like, like what I'm talking about is like a lot of, some of Kant and deontology and also like this idea of, you know, the value is generated from a person by virtue of the rational will of a person, right? And it's like, because rational wills are responsible for the creation of value, then rational wills themselves either have value or are regarded in such a way uh, that they can be, that value judgments can be made in regards to them, right? This idea that you don't trust, treat people merely as means because they have these qualities independently of material objects that you observe, right? Because they have this thing, this quality of thought, this quality of idea, right? And so San Rio they govern the quality of idea of Hello Kitty, right? They, and, they, and for Sanrio, Hello Kitty is a means, strictly a means to an end, right? Well, I mean, you could say no that. Uh, you could say that Hello Kitty is a means, yeah. I mean, they're trying to make money. That's true. But that, actually, that's an interesting question. Is, for Sanrio, is Hello Kitty a means to an end, or is Sanrio a means to an end, and Hello Kitty is an extension of Sanrio, right? Like, where is the... Where is the end in itself? Is it in the corporation Sanrio? No, it's in the shareholders, right? Or is it in the management? Or is it in the employees or the people that care about it, right? Like, who is the who is Hello Kitty for? What is Hello Kitty doing? That's a fascinating question. Can can we put this up to a shareholder vote? Vote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello Kitty's cat. Well, what we've determined, right, is that in order to determine on an essentialist basis that Hello Kitty is a little girl, independently of the observation of Hello Kitty by a, by the use of the senses, right, then we need to determine some sort of uh, thing in itself, right? The the uh, the the the, uh, the thing in itself, the the thing that is capable of generating value that is like either separate from or at once with the material world, and we need to figure out where that authority rests, right, and where we find that thing. And Schopenhauer would say that's in. <laughs> It's in the company, and uh, and Kant would say that it's in the shareholders. Uh, it's separate from the company. But yeah, it's like, well, this, the owners of Sanrio can can potentially determine it, although you might also argue that it is the job of the board of directors to uh, not to set the uh, the thing in itself that determines all meaning for Sanrio, but it's their job to pick a management team that does that. So in terms of corporate structure, it gets complicated. But no, but you get you understand that idea that I'm saying that like you could make an essentialist statement that Hello Kitty is a little girl and that she is merely made in the motif of a cat, right? And that there is a little girlness about her that is kind of inviolate and a numenolo- like a numenon. It's like a it's like a whole idea that is not to be shattered. Except it's protected not by the quality of I- an essential quality of ideas, but by like an actual police force, right? That like that like holds meaning. Better enforce copyright and trademark. Exactly. Exactly. And brand. Yeah. You know, in brand more than copyright and trademark too, but brand, yeah, and licensing. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, does that make I mean, sense? The, there's only the one thing that to do, which is to charge our readers to perform an exhaust, exhaustive literature search through Hello Kitty um, official and unofficial uh, Hello 
Kitty literature, right? I'm talking about both the um, canonical Hello Kitty produced by Sanrio as well as the Hello Kitty expanded universe and, uh, and, and fan fiction. Well, this this brings up the problem of the true Scotch Hello Kitty, the true Scots Kitty, uh, which is the <laughs> idea that what if you were to take this endeavor upon this literature search and you were to find counterexamples to the idea that Hello Kitty is a little girl done in the motif of a cat and not a cat that is also a person, right? If you were to find counterexamples, Sanrio could say, well, that's not really Hello Kitty. Like, that's a mistake. Yeah. Right? And that's like the true Scotsman fallacy of like, you know, no, oh, true Scotsman don't do that. Right? Like that kind of thing. And now, gosh, I've been Scottish. I've been a dog. All sorts of, all sorts of journeys. <laughs> I want to be an otter in a jug band. Like, do, do, do. No, 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 no. Um, Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> Good but that's boy. the point is that if Hello Kitty, if there is a platonic form of Hello Kitty, right? If there's sort of like an enshrined transcendental Hello Kitty that exists above and beyond and separate from all of the projections and images of Hello Kitty that exist, then a literature survey may not really give you the – it would certainly give you like the weight of consensus, right? Like you could look to consensus as a determining factor. That's what you're saying, right? It's yeah. like is like there's there's other there's other heuristics you can turn to like logical heuristics and other sorts of ways of problem solving that you can turn to to try to determine whether whether Hello Kitty is a person or Hello Kitty is a cat, right? Like you know one of them is yeah like well one of them is to observe Hello Kitty and and then take ex- do experiments on Hello Kitty right like uh, <laughs> test Hello Kitty with regards to certain qualities that you would aspire you would describe to a cat you know go to your Linnaeus right go to your taxonomical term try to determine whether Hello Kitty reproduces right and if it, she were to reproduce whether it would be in an egg or whether it would be <laughs> in a womb uh but that wouldn't help that would just be interesting to know and something that you should just do for the sake of pure science um but yeah or you could do a literary survey and you could say well what's the weight of, of like credible peer-reviewed consensus on hello kitty <laughs> like what's uh, if by peer you mean like the people who buy and enjoy Hello Kitty products. Like Hello Kitty enthusiasts could sort of be seen as an academy. You could also take a poll, right? You could ask people, right? And you could be like, well, what do you all think about what Hello Kitty is? Because you could say the author is dead. Hello Kitty belongs to you. You you own that wallet. You care about Hello Kitty. To, you could say Hello Kitty as an idea does not exist solely in this you know, shrine of Sanrio, this like hallowed place where ideas are allowed to exist. Even if a brand department wants to be able to say that they're the people who get to dictate what Hello Kitty is, really, Hello Kitty is an idea that exists in all of our minds and all of our hearts. And thus, like, they don't, they cannot exert through economics their, the, a tyranny of ideas that gets to decide more than anybody else whether Don't Hello give Kitty. them ideas, Pete. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm envisioning like Sanrio's like thought police that are going around um, to uh, to little children's uh, homes, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Into their into their, crashing down their bedrooms <laughs> and grabbing their Hello Kitty uh, pillow that's on the bed and like shaking your fears in front of this little girl and being like, "What is this? Tell me what this is." <laughs> Where's the pop? Like, Where's it's, the it's, it's a cat and, and, the, and the, like, no, 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 no. This is not a cat. Like this, that, that is the horrible scenario dystopia which we're all headed to. Um, that, uh, let's let's not go there. I think it's Pete. I think it's time. I might want to say you know goodbye, Kitty. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, well, let's to this topic. Okay, so there was another topic that we wanted to address uh, because there's some, been some big news uh, 
that, that uh, came out this week, which was that the earlier rumors that Google was going to buy Twitch, the offshoot of Justin TV that has become famous as a dominant name in the live streaming of video game play. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm a per- I am a personally a person who watches a lot of video game streaming and video game Let's Plays as a form of entertainment. Uh, and so this is something I'm familiar with, and Mark has become more familiar with it as he's heard this news. But they, there were rumors a while ago they were going to be bought by Google. Now it seems as if those rumors were, were either incorrect or uh, superseded, and they are now going to be bought by Amazon and Amazon is looking to buy Twitch for like a billion dollars. Um, Which to put into context, what uh, another big tech acquisition recently that happened was what Insta- Facebook bought Instagram for sixteen billion or something like that, or, or WhatsApp maybe for sixteen billion. So like this is a lot of money. It's not like the hugest thing, yeah, but it's still pretty big, right? Yeah, and I and you get the sense that Amazon has a lot of muscle to flex in terms of acquisitions. And of course, these if Amazon sees itself as sort of a tech company. Right, if Amazon sees itself more as more as a Google, more as a Facebook, and less of a sort of shipping and logistics and retail company, then it sure. makes sense for them to sort of aggressively invest in acquisitions on different platforms, right? And sort of to because they have to continue to innovate and evolve, and in order to stay big, they have to kind of incorporate those innovations and evolutions into themselves. So mm-hmm. this seems, and I mean, there is, I'm not making that all up entirely. We're also talking about there's an article on VentureBeat about. Amazon seeing Google and Apple as their competition, and we're looking right. at that now. And of course, this is venture capitalism and, and the sort of startup venture culture is really where this deal kind of lives in the hearts and minds of the universe, right? Where it's like you do this streaming service and it gets bought for a billion dollars, but it gets bought by. And how, and how are you going to leverage it to do all this other make? more money stuff right right, right? right. but like I, I think for the purpose of our conversation here we're trying to think about this as entertainment as pop culture as something that you watch instead of you know uh what uh, pretty little liars on tv or breaking bad on netflix right right right, right. like so um I, I approach this um you know from the perspective of like well what's the big deal like uh, what what exactly is twitch tv and how is it that live streaming of video games is being presented as something that I would watch um, instead of Pretty Little Liars on TV or Breaking Bad on Netflix. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I approach this as someone who in the past has enjoyed playing video games a lot. More recently, um, haven't been able to a whole lot. Um, and so, uh, you know, I had a few guesses, right? And we've talked about esports on this podcast mm-hmm. before, right? So, and there's certainly some of that going on. And I, I saw that and I, I immediately saw, okay, this is StarCraft 2. I don't, I've tried to watch StarCraft to in action and have not been able to wrap my mind around this. So I kept going around and I finally found some like zombie uh, sort of first person shooter kind of game. So like, okay, I understand this. There's going to be like, some dude with a gun. He's trying to shoot enemies. And so I'm going to load this up and I'm going to watch this. Um, and what, from what I understand of this, the appeal is not simply of watching a video game be played, right? And get and deriving pleasure from seeing a character, um, accomplish things and overcome obstacles and accomplish goals, that sort of thing. Um, it's a lot of it is, is about the personalities of the people who are presenting, who are playing the game and just sort of like babbling or, or chatting uh, going on as they play the game. Right. Um, yes. So that's sort of, that's what I, I, I think is going on in terms of, of Twitch TV, watching people play video games uh, as a form of, of entertainment. Um, which is so that's a different thing, of course, in the esports thing where you're like, you know, rooting for someone or very much vested in like, you know, seeing people 
um, uh, uh, accomplish goals and, and triumph over their adversaries and that sort of thing. Um, so that's what I think is going on. Pete, as someone who's watched a lot more Twitch TV than I have, what do you think is going on? Am I onto something here or you see something different? I mean, there's, there's some refinements and some additions I can make, but I think the core of what you're saying is basically accurate. Um, well, first thing is that there is esports on Twitch, right? You can watch the, um, yeah. sorry, you can watch like big tournaments on Twitch. Some of the other services, some of the games have their own stuff that they play, but like if there's a big championship in like League of Legends or something, uh, I mean, I don't personally, League of Legends is the biggest game on Twitch right now. And it's, that is a whole other separate story about how League of Legends and the, 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 was it the MOBAs? I just think of them as the Dota variants, uh, those lane games, that those have come forward as the dominant kind of e- spectator esports over real-time strategy and, games and first-person shooters. And, and, and what are games. all those things? That, what are all those things you just described? Because League of Legends and Dota and that other thing you said, they, they actually don't mean much to me at all. Okay, so, so the, kinds of games, the, the kinds of games that get streamed on Twitch is important uh, to understand what Twitch is. Um, there are, the article that we're looking at says that there's like a million different people who stream things on Twitch. I mean, that's true, but there is a pretty big fall-off after the first bunch of games to all the other games that are being broadcast. Uh, the big games that get broadcast, I mean, I, I want to look at like what are, their top 10, what are their top games right now. The other thing about Twitch to keep in mind is that that uh, I don't know what kind of revenue agreements they have with video game companies to feature their games over anyone else's. So I don't know whether when when Twitch says mm. something is a featured game, I mean, there it seems like a slam dunk that someone's paying them to show it, right? So like right now, as I look on Twitch, League of Legends has 81,000 viewers. Counter-Strike has 45,000 viewers. Hearthstone, which is a Magic the Gathering cl- semi, semi-variant that was developed by the Warcraft people and is doing very well, has 29,000 viewers. Minecraft has 11,000, World of Warcraft 10,000, and it goes down to StarCraft 2 in the top 12 with like 4,600. Uh, but you see the like the gap between the number one game and like the number 10 game is a factor of almost 15 or 20, mm-hmm. right? Like, so like the big games are the ones now. Um, so, okay, so we want to differentiate between esports and okay, I'm rooting for a team, and that's why I'm watching. Right. That's one reason why you might want to watch. Is it, is a, it a team game. or like individual personalities or both? I mean, it's individual people, but it's also like um, you're rooting for. I would say that like it's more NFL, less, less XFL in a lot of these cases. If you're talking about actual esports, by which I would generally refer to like really, really big tournaments where mm-hmm. they have commentators and they have replays and like stuff like that. I would say it's less that if, if, if you want to watch, it's like the difference between watching an actual pay-per-view UFC fight and watching a, like the ultimate fighter reality show, mm-hmm. right? Like you can watch both. You can watch every, everywhere on the gradation. And there are pay-per-view events that you can purchase and direct, and, you know, um, VODs that you can buy for like the different esports events so that's like one aspect of it and then there's a whole continuum of tournaments and stuff that are varying levels of formality that are on this service and various levels of kind of personability and it's not just so when i say root for the team i mean like i want that person or that group of people to win right and and uh mm-hmm. now and, and so to go through the the and the reason i wanted to point out that these are the ones that are dominant is that these are largely computer games Right, like there's no console games on this list, which is really interesting because console games are well. Minecraft is available on consoles, and I guess technically Counter Strike is available on consoles, um, but like, come on, not really. Um, and so that was a long time ago. And so these are mostly computer games; they're mostly mm-hmm. PC games, and and so the vast majority of actual video gaming still takes place on consoles. Uh, and the vast majority of streaming takes place with computers, which makes sense because what you have to do is you have to put 
you have to play the game on your computer while you're broadcasting it, right? So like, you and, and you install some sort of plugin on your computer yeah, that yeah. allows you to, to transmit. It. I have no idea how you would accomplish it. I did it for overthinking it once for a video. You can find it. It was about what in-game and out-of-game resources yep. yeah, 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 yeah. in StarCraft. You get a something called like Fraps or Fantasia or Camtasia or something. And there's various programs that make it pretty easy to do. Um, everybody is, people are invested now in making this easy for you to do. So it's pretty easy to do, but, but so, okay. So an FPS first person shooter, right? It's like yep. doom, right? It's like yep. doom. It's like golden eye for us old fashioned folks. It's like quake for still old fashioned folks or like time splitters. I could keep going forward until we get to the present day call of duty, right? Um, modern warfare, uh, battlefield, you know, you're running around with a gun in front of you and you're shooting things, team fortress yep. two, things like that. That's a big one, right? For, for, for streaming. Um, uh, fighting games are kind of okay big, but not huge. Sometimes there's a big, really big tournament, and they'll have a lot on, on Twitch, but, you know, it's not up there right now, right? And that's like, kind of surprises me because that's, like, a very obvious and easy thing to follow, right? Maybe oh, yeah. it's, like, not complex enough to be interesting enough and engaging over the long term. I mean, it's, I it's, it's, it's popular. It's just, like, not dominant. Okay. Um, it's, it's popular, but I think there's also issues with like the, f- one of the other things about fighting games is yeah, people play them online, but there's still a great deal of equity placed in like actually sitting next to the person and playing them. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time when you're watching coverage of fighting games streamed online, it'll be like, there'll be a camera at a live event and you'll be able to see the people sitting in their seats. Right. And yeah, they do that for some of the big esports things for other sports too, but it's a bigger, I think it's more important for fighting. And yeah, you can watch streaming fighting games. It's not, but it's just like, it's not on top right now. The thing that you probably don't don't know about are games like dota uh which are these moba games which is dota was originally it's defense of the ancients is what it was called and it was originally a mod that was made to a real-time strategy game warcraft 3 have you ever played a real-time strategy game mark like a uh, command and conquer command right? and you conquer the units and you move around yeah yeah, yeah 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 you build buildings you harvest resources to build buildings you use buildings to build armies you battle the armies against each other it's a pro- so, and then you have to weigh the pros and I mean, cons really starcraft fast. is a real-time strategy game exactly same yeah. right so uh warcraft 3 uh, had mods and i apologize if dota is actually from warcraft 2 or something but uh warcraft 3 had a mod community you could reprogram the game in certain ways and you could play different variations on it and there was one variation people came up with where there were three players on each team um and although i've only really played the only one of these i've played is called um oh they have such bad names sometimes uh i played one for starcraft 2 i can't remember what it's called right now it's not particularly popular but it's the one where it's the one where i got to know the uh the actual mechanics of the game there are these lanes right it's it takes place in a dense jungle or forest or some other sort of sort of like dense terrain and there are lanes through the terrain right where uh, where things are cleared out and it's just a clear run and and on either side of the screen are bases that are issuing forth little minions like little mon- little weak monsters that run along these lanes and when they reach the midpoint in the lane they fight each other and mutually kill each other and yeah. in this way they establish kind of an equilibrium in each lane right um, and you're and each base is defended by a lot of static defenses like cannons or uh or like ballistas or catapults or whatever the whatever the heck it is right it's very clear i don't play these games but i I can still can still explain it to you um and then the players the job of the players on each team is to a assist their minions in beating the other minions so that the sort of flow of battle 
encroaches and and eventually destroys the other person's base. Um, But also engage and fight each other. So it's sort of like, it's similar to a real-time strategy game, but each person, in turn, it's mechanics, but each person only controls one character, and uh, the characters battle each other, they they fight for experience points and upgrades, and, uh, and they also fight to try to shift the general tide of battle toward the other person's base to win the game by destroying their base. Right, so that's sure. so that's that's how these games work, and they are very okay. very popular right now. Anyway, I've I've spent a lot. Of, now you guys know how all these things how those things how these things work, like League of Legends. Um, okay, so. so so watching that um, and, and that back and forth and rooting for a team is like is is more or less akin to watching NFL football and saying like you know I, I, I like you know I'm interested in the progress of this of this match as opposed to some other sort of like you know interested in personalities or, or some sort of narratives that are constructed that are not necessarily about um, the mere back and forth in the game itself. Well, okay, so the narratives aren't necessarily constructed, uh, except in the sense that they're lived, right? Like, it's drama between individual people, and mm. it's the people... People don't really play characters, except in the sense that we're all characters when we're in public, right? Like, uh, people are themselves, right? Well, they, are the, they are the characters that they present to the world as themselves, like in reality television. Um, but yeah, but you might watch a person's stream where they're playing the game online by themselves at home, and they're playing against other people that are online in other places, but they're talking about their job, or they're talking about what they're studying in school or the music that they like, right? Like, so there is a kind of personal relationship with the streamer who is doing this, mm-hmm. and they make jokes and stuff like that. And also, there are chat boxes where the people who are watching can chat with the streamer. So it's interesting because this is a form of, of entertainment that is that is very aggressively, constantly innovating on its own model because the, there's all variations and they are constantly all being made. Like the machine is constantly churning out new ideas and new ways of doing this. And of course, like things that are successful, like move to the top and if you want to stop watching something and watch something else you can do it immediately right like it's it's and there's tons and tons of options right so but the thing that i would say is that there is an aspect of this entertainment that is different from just sports and just um uh like reality tv identifying with a personality mm-hmm. right and that's the engaging in the game um the uh, the role of the game as an entertainment as a spectator entertainment itself as distinct from the plot of a tv show so, um, I mean, we talked about this before in that games design is largely based around these sort of dopamine releases, these moments of victory. This idea that games these days are very heavily engineered toward making themselves addictive uh, or towards the programmers making them addictive and designers, developers making them addictive for people. So yep. and you get like little reward, little reward, little reward. Big reward, little reward, little reward, and you know games are easier now than they were when we were younger, generally because uh, right. the idea and the, of the, the occasional setback um, that will only want you to uh, that will inspire you to earn more reward, right? Yeah. As opposed to just like you know killing you entirely and just sending you back to the, to, to stage zero. Yeah, nowadays would happen back yeah. in the day. So like nowadays to be really really good at a video game, it means to play it all the time. Right, you play it all the time, and you just you continue, and you just rack up an enormous amount of inter- of engagement with this game, uh, and and become so 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 good at it. But all along the way, you're being rewarded with constant successes. Like, yes, you might have failures by your own standards, but you're still getting indications from the game that you're doing well. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that aspect of it. There's also the aspect of kind of problem solving. Can you see what the person sees? Can you figure out what the person figures out? Right, the systematic thinking, the kind of mathematics of it. I mean, I get engaged a lot by the strategy of it where it's like i'm trying to figure out what i would do if i were in the game um and i feel like and it's interesting because since i've been watching video game streaming i've become a lot more critical of sports commentary 
because I like getting invested in the game. These are often games that I like playing, just as sports that I like watching are sports that if I if I could do it right now, I would like to play. I would like to play baseball. I would like to play soccer. It would be fun, right? And so I watch that from the perspective of somebody who knows how the game works and would appreciate wanting to play it if I could, but I can't for whatever reason because I got to clean my apartment or whatever, right? And so like, uh, or you know, blow up my ACL or I'll break my back if I try to play real life football. I'm 34 years old. You can't do that anymore, right? Like, um. This 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 is like uh, the, I, I I understand how it works. I am constantly trying to figure it out while the people in front of me are also figuring it out in real time. And so I hate sports highlights where all they show you are the huge touchdowns and the huge big runs and the huge home runs because it's usually not that the person did something really super extraordinary to cause that thing to happen, right? Like the, the actual interplay of the game is not in those big plays for the most mm-hmm. part, most of the time. Usually what they really should show you is not the guy running 80 yards, but like the defensive end who missed his block, right? You know, they should show you like the cornerback. Well, uh, the other thing that comes to mind is what should they show you? It's like the uh, hours upon hours of repetitive drills the team did. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you get to watch uh, in streaming, too. You can watch them practice. You can watch yeah, we're not even yeah. practice, but like in thinking about a lot of the games that I, I spent a lot of time in, um, uh, and maybe this isn't the best example because there's not a lot of that sort of dopamine release thing going on, but there's like a lot of time spent exploring and ex- experimenting and. Uh, and, and, and trial and error, and uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, right? It, you know, those sorts of things uh, map to um, you know the drills that you run Monday through uh, Friday, rather rather than the um, the big touchdown you score on Saturday, yeah, or Sunday, right? Right, and like that's where you f- you figure out the mechanics of the game, where you gather resources, um, and where you prepare to to fight the big battles. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, yes, in, if you're a really hardcore sports fan, you can find these sorts of conversations as they go on. They exist; they're on the internet. But a lot of sports reporting is more focused on crafting a narrative that. Uh, reflects to you what ha- the, the, it starts from the assumption that the sport that happened was a random event, right? That doesn't matter, and you're crafting a narrative to try to get people interested in that in this game, right? Who are the stars? Yeah. What's the storyline? Now, a video game has all those things built in, and they're a lot they're a lot more compelling than the narratives in that you get from a random sports writer a lot of the time, right? Especially just for a random game, right? So it's like, well, the video game, you know, in this in this particular in this game, this is the first time that so-and-so is back at this field since they left. Well, in this game, you know, the Galactic Council is shattered, and we need to get to the palace to get these things to happen. If you think of that as sort of flavor, right, that's sort of behind what's happening in the actual game, then there, then game, video game as entertainment has some advantages over sport, because it's these sort of forced narratives that are created with a minimal of actual information and exposure to what's actually happening, right? Like, they have a certain limited scope. Um, I mean, they're exciting, and I love them. I love NFL films. I love you know all of the uh, I love all the stories of sports. I love my Sports Center, but it's like the, the Twitch is doing some things better than sports reporting does in terms of turning a competitive endeavor that to an observer seems semi-random into a narrativized piece of art with characters and compelling reasons to watch it, and also just like a lot of information. If you just love competence, if you love people who are really good at things, video game streaming shows you people being very good at things in a way where it is really apparent. 
that people are really good at what they're doing. Whereas sometimes you watch a basketball game and they're like, it's like maybe two teams that aren't so good, right? But they look terrible. They look slow. They look like they're missing shots. But these are any one of these people is still much much better at basketball than anyone you've ever met in your life, right? And like the TV doesn't get that across, right? Like you don't get a sense that you know the the bench player for the I can't even name a basketball team that's good or bad, right? I, like, I want to say like the Dallas Mavericks, but uh, they might very well be good. Uh, I want to say the Timberwolves, well, they just lost Kevin Love, but I don't really know who their bench players are. But I don't want to, I don't want to insult them. But you know what I mean, like the sixth stringer. I, I, I do, yeah, but I want to challenge you a little bit yeah. on, on, on this point you're making here. And maybe this is sort of what we uh, end the podcast on is that, um, you know, when, when thinking about like, you know, watching sports and being able to appreciate uh, that or, you know, it's Twitch TV and, and appreciating the competence that you see on display here, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's, I'm not, are, Peter, are you saying that it is, it is similar or dissimilar to what you see in sports or some are like easier to comprehend on Twitch TV rather than sports? Oh, I'm saying that it's very similar, but that it's done better in certain cases. It's done better in certain cases. Yeah, or in a lot of cases. I mean, like, I, I mean, because one of the big hurdles I see to really getting interested in, in, in Twitch TV is um, that, you know, you have to have some baseline familiarity with the game. Oh, yeah. That, that's, being, that's being played. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's just completely inaccessible. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing about sports, you know, whatever, soccer, football, hockey, what, you know, basketball, what have you. It's just that those saturate our culture much more, so it's more likely for the random person I mean, the consumer of entertainment to uh, have that baseline to be able to watch uh, sports and appreciate that competency, right? Which you just don't uh, like, like, again, going back to what I was talking about before, like how I tried to watch StarCraft and try to have an appreciation for the amazing skill that someone displays when moving their Zerg or their whatever their, their things in, in, in battle formation. And I just, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Well, that's, I, that's, I you make a great it. point. And I would say that sports are so. We talked about the big divide between the video games that people actually play in large numbers and the video games that people stream, right? Mm -hmm. And the video games that people play are generally intuitive games that you can understand pretty easily, right? Call of Duty. Call of Duty, you know. You got a gun. You shoot people. Whereas, you know, Counter-Strike is years and years and years old at this point. Like, why is that the game that people play? There are reasons why it's the game that people play, but none of them are reasons that a spectator would care about, right? Like, um, and and, and just even something as simple as just like when Wii Sports was like the best-selling video game of all time right you know or the yeah. zelda games right so like regular sports like the sports you see this in sports because the sports that are fun to watch uh, and intuitive in terms of the entertainment that they provide are the popular sports like track and field has a shitty story oh excuse me i shouldn't curse but track and field has a bad storyline it's like oh, what's the story run <laughs> you know, like run <laughs> run as fast as you can it's only interesting when it's the fastest person in the world Right, or if it, or if there's some additional compelling factor, like, and even then, if it's some additional compelling yeah, factor, like I'll the Olympics, just, you know, they have the human interest story, yeah. you know, overcame adversity, and grew yeah. up and I was a track runner. Or... I was a track runner in high school, so like, I'm not, I don't hate track. I love, I, I loved it when I did it, but it's like, it's not good spectator stuff, and because it, it's just like, there's not an intuitive. It's a, it's not easy to learn what's going on. It's not easy to tell what's going on from watching it because you don't know what people did to get to run so fast, and also you can't really tell how fast people are running because they're winning by like a hundredth of a second. 
right? And then, and then it's like, yeah, and then when it happens, there's no sort of inherent narrativization. So these, the other thing about these games, and maybe this is what we end the podcast on, because it really loops back to the Sanrio stuff too, which is that these are games that, that they have a big, they have a big barrier to entry, right? You have to learn what they're about. You have to learn how to play them. You have to read about them and understand them in order to understand the streaming. And they, the games are designed with features that help you do that. They have tutorials. They have like, you know, there's a first uh, single-player campaign that you can do to learn these things. So the games are trying really, really hard and deploy a lot of resources to like get you to make that investment. And then once you make that investment, you tend to stick with one of these games for a long time. Counter-Strike came out a long time ago, a very long time ago. Even StarCraft yeah, I mean, 2 at this point is pretty freaking old, and it's not people nearly... Are playing the, people are playing the original StarCraft for, what, a decade or something like that? Yeah, yeah, insane. yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so it's like, even you know, Warcraft 3 is still one of the top games uh, on Twitch right now, right? Like, at least right now, at this very moment. Diablo 3, you know, which is not necessarily a hot ticket anymore, but it's like Diablo is a long and storied franchise. Like, these are these things, you stick with these things, and you stay loyal to these things. And that's one of the things that makes it compelling for, as a media property, and as a pop culture property. Because the, what, the big story about sports right now is that sports is the only thing that people still watch on television. Right? It's like, and I, I mean, I, let me rephrase that. It's the only thing that people still watch on television live, live. when it happens, when you want them to watch it rather yeah. than appointment on their television own time. that that yeah. and, uh, and award shows yeah exactly those are the big ones and everything else okay we got to sell breaking bad streaming through itunes and all this other stuff because everybody wants to watch breaking bad but we got to make it available on all these different platforms because they don't want to watch it on tv right and and sports inspires this in people because they become very committed to their teams and because of just the many qualities that make watching it at the moment much more fun and interesting video game streaming is like that but like even more so because you have to get really embedded and you also a lot of these people spend a lot of money on video games um yep. you know yep. like if you bought if you bought starcraft and the expansion you know and you bought them when they came out that's like 120 dollars, right like mm-hmm. that's and that's not and you also probably are playing it on a computer that costs you like a thousand bucks if you're playing it on a good one if you're one of these like real enthusiasts right you're not just playing it on a dell inspiring and you're like playing it with high graphic settings like you know if you're if you're a member of the pc master race as some like to call themselves um you know you're well, playing it on that's a, a thing seriously it's a subreddit it's on reddit yeah, um and it's, it's a Thing. It's a little bit bad. Yeah, I mean, this is this is gets to the whole idea of like this video game culture and these people that are really committed to these video games. And I count myself among people who likes this kind of video game culture. But it, there is just such a huge toxic element. It is just just really toxic. I mean, a lot of it is because a lot of these are teenage boys, and a lot of us don't remember how terrible it was to be a teenage boy or how terrible <laughs> other teenage boys are. But they're terrible, and it's terrible. Um, and so you know, if it's like, who do you expect to have a you know mature idea about things? And I mean, I don't want to be mean to our listeners because you know adults are also terrible and adults are terrible in ways that teenage boys can only begin to comprehend right like adults adults are capable of like a vastly vastly greater terribleness than teenage boys are but what i'm saying is that like the, the degrees of like of decorum and courtesy right like and 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 politeness and civility right um uh, are are going to are they have tra- problems in the video game community a lot of it is because people are watching it by themselves they're watching it anonymously from home and they're commenting anonymously from home by themselves they're not engaging socially right and so like mm-hmm. th- then this has effects on what people are willing to say there's just i mean that's that's a whole other podcast to have like like what is it about video game culture and of course sports culture is also just as bad i mean i say these things about video game culture as if you know there are freaking nfl quarterbacks who are just like 
like openly raping people and getting away with it, right? Like, or, or sports or sports fans who write, you know, gather together, yeah, uh, physically in, in a public space, not anonymously behind a computer, and and do and say horrible things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, it's not fair to single out video games as separate from real life sports as places where bad things happen. But it is new that video games have yeah. organized ways. It is relatively new in which video games a have organized ways in which this is communicated broadly to everybody who doesn't play video games, and like. And B is just like really rising and becoming a, a really important place in the culture uh, because of its economic its economic fundamentals, which are attractive to various people. Yeah. <sighs> did, did you uh, manage to tie that back to Hello Kitty somehow already? Or did I miss that? Well, here's the thing, right? Is that like this is this is where it's like Sanrio are the priests that determine what Hello Kitty is and what Hello Kitty isn't, and they set the rules, right? And they set the ideas, and they set the values, right? And, and, and you get the sense with Hello Kitty that, yes, there are, like, going to be Rule 34 things out there and dirty things out there and whatnot, but, let, like, people in general who like Hello Kitty are faithful to Hello Kitty's interpretation of how things ought to work, right? That, that, they're, that they generally, like, will buy the Hello Kitty cell phone case that was intended for them by Sanrio, or if they buy a knockoff, it'll be very similar to the Sanrio one, and they will say, oh, Hello Kitty, it's so cute, which is exactly what Sanrio wants to say, and they'll feel like Hello Kitty is a friend, right? Um, It is very easy to take this relationship for granted. It is not an easy thing to do. It is not a simple thing to do. The companies do not control what happens to their products. They do not control what people think about them. They go... People, corporations don't really control the culture. That's the moral of the story, right? Is that like, we like to Mm. think and talk about corporations controlling the culture, but like, it is a tenuous relationship. And the culture, and the culture doesn't know how much power it has. Um, And also, the the culture doesn't know how, (laughs) the culture doesn't know its own dark nature enough sometimes, right? Mm. Like, the culture doesn't know what it's capable of, right? And so it's like, you know, Hello Kitty could be, you know, a, a genocidal propaganda tool. Easily, <laughs> you know, like you, Sanrio could have said, "Hello Kitty is a Japanese little girl, right?" And she represents everything that's great about Japan. But they didn't. They said Hello Kitty was British, right? Hello Kitty's like a British little girl. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, well, that's a very that's an interesting choice because they didn't pick something that was provocative. Really, I mean, I guess in Hong Kong that could potentially be provocative, right? And that's a big place for Hello Kitty, but it's not as provocative saying like Hello or is, is, you know Sanrio is that a Japanese company, right? Yeah, it is, right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like you know they didn't say in, there's no argument over like you know Hello Kitty is Hello Kitty black, right? Like you know what, <laughs> there's all sorts of ways in which Hello Kitty could get enlisted in various sorts of broad cultural conversations that are much more chaotic than the kind of conversations that Sanrio wants Hello Kitty invested in. And I think that the lesson of kind of Twitch being this kind of rogue entertainment format that is gathering all this strength and has all this economic fundamentals and has this culture behind it, and it's kind of grown, and now now people are weighing in and being like, you shouldn't do that. Now they're saying it, right? Like when it's been around for years, and it's like, well, if you wanted to be part of the early formative days of Twitch, you're too late, right? You needed to be with Hello Kitty on the ground floor when she first got her cat to determine which one was Hello Kitty and which one was the cat. <laughs> yes, things change, but they don't change that much. Can, can we bring this all full, full circle? Is, is there a Hello Kitty video game that you can stream through Twitch TV? Oh, let's find right now. I'm going to search right now. Hello Kitty. If there's not, can we just like download one now? And like, Can we just launch the overthinking it Twitch TV 
channel with you and me playing a Hello Kitty video game. Okay, so there are three streamers whose names are Hello Kitty that come up in the search. No, there's three more. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's there's no fewer than ten just in the first page of results of streamers currently on Twitch who call themselves Hello Kitty. That's um, amazing. Hello Kitty is very popular. Also, oh, yeah, yeah. the very top uh, uh, link for a stream is somebody named Immunicorn, Emo Unicorn. Emo Unicorn is playing Hello Kitty online, and the name of the stream is I Have No Idea What I'm Doing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, I feel that way sometimes too, and I'm sure Mark feels that way too. Uh, and so if you feel that way, and uh, you want to, and you want to engage the problem, and maybe not solve it, and you want to dive into the philosophy and the ideas and the economics and the trends and the culture and all the dynamics in play in all of the culture that you love, we really appreciate that you choose us to be your companions along that trip. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please check out our other podcasts. We have an iTunes podcast page now so you can see compiled in one place all of our uh, all of our audio properties there are also video properties on our YouTube channel overthink it where you can see our other series that we don't cross broadcast all the time uh, yeah and we got articles and we got videos and we got images and we got charts and we got comments and forums and all forums, the things yes, check the, forums. the one thing we don't have is video game streaming we do have a steam group which I set up years ago and did nothing with it's based in the nation of Georgia because that was the one that won that contest Oh, Belarus won that contest. But we have fans in Belarus and Georgia who express fondness for the show. So our Steam group is in Georgia. If you want to join our Steam group, uh, check us out, and then maybe I'll do something with it at some point in the future. But for all these things and more, we ask you, we ask you, we ask you that you visit us on the web. Where? At www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Pete, would you watch my uh, Twitch TV Wing Commander channel? That depends. Are you a space cat or are you a person in the motif of a space cat? <laughs> you, you missed the Hello Kill Brathy. Uh, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this is right there for the taking. <laughs> <laughs>